Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittaman. This is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is brought to you by Mercury Mile. Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for runners of all abilities. It's simple, fun, and easy. Just go on to mercurymile.com. You can even do this on your phone. That's how I did it. You just go in, create a login name, give your preferences, your sizes, and then they'll send you out a curated box of variety of things, actually, uh, that you may or may not like. Then that's the best part. You basically choose what you like, send back what you don't. It is so easy. Uh, And this is really a company that I have grown to love more and more as the year has gone on. So uh, I can't recommend them highly enough. If you do check them out, just use promo code RAMBLINGRUNNER10 at checkout and you'll save 10 bucks on the stylus fee. So today's episode is with Megan Doherty. Megan is a fantastic runner. She actually ran in college and then has gotten uh, more into distance running as the years have gone on since she graduated. But this episode is less about running per se than it is about mental health. So this is kind of the first step in a journey that I want to take along this path when it comes to exposing, not exposing, but just discussing mental health and how it affects a variety of people in the running community and to what degree uh, running can uh, impact mental health uh, in a positive sense. You know, I think for a lot of people, um, they view running as maybe as a silver bullet solution, and it certainly is not that, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper with Megan. So this was a first attempt at discussing a very large issue that affects a lot of people both in and out of running. So if I, uh, if I say anything on here or maybe use the wrong wording or phrasing, please uh, give me some grace on that. I apologize. This is new for me too, but I hope you like um, what we're trying to do here. This is kind of a, you know, this week we're going to be discussing a couple different mental health topics and I want to discuss more and more as the year progresses. Not This won't be the only topic on this show, but I think it's one that we all deal with on some degree. And with it being so universal, I definitely want to talk about it more and more in this space. So I hope you like this episode with Megan Doherty. Hello, Megan, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thank you. Forward to having you on, so I really appreciate you taking time out of your evening. Um, I guess first things first. I loved you had a post a little while ago. It was like one of those Transformation Tuesday uh, specials, but I loved it because you you obviously have been really been progressing in your marathons, and you just set a big marathon PR in May. So just for the people, what what was the time? Um, it was a three twenty seven. Oh, congratulations! You got that BQ. Thank you so much. Well, I'll tell you what, it was, it was, uh, you know, it's nice to see people kind of like over a long period of time, just like put in the time and make it happen. And you certainly have. And when you got that, when you got that, that big, you know, that was like that huge PR for you, you dropped like eight minutes on your previous marathon PR. Yeah. Um, when you got that, was it more, was it kind of like a relief or was it more of, all right, let's make this happen. How low can I go? <laughs> so um, initially, it was the best feeling in the world because I have been chipping away at it little by little. It was my fourth marathon. So when I got it, like the tears didn't stop streaming. I couldn't stop smiling for days. And then I'd like pinch myself and remember I did be cute. And 
I know for some people it, they do it all the time, but for me, it was just the pie in the sky goal and it finally happened. So it was huge. It's still huge. Like I forget. And then I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to Boston this year. It's so exciting. It's like a bucket list thing for me, but then like, you know, you get that. Okay, well I did it. So what's next? So, you know, I'm a goal setter. I try to set short-term goals and then hopefully they get to the long-term. So I am trying to bring it down even more. Oh, that's always fun to try to see, try to see exactly what you're capable of doing. Um, guess that's why we all get into it on some level and it's always fun to see exactly how that's going to work and i know that part of the reason that we got on um got on this call was because not only are you used to seeing what you're capable of doing from a physical standpoint but you know you're you know a clinical psychologist you're a therapist we got that you're bachelor's in clinical psychology you have a master's in something that i can't pronounce i'll let you do it (laughs) Oh, you say what it is. <laughs> it's clinical community mental health counseling. It's ridiculously long. <laughs> it's, it sounds very involved. You know, you know, it's hard when I can't even, I don't even understand the title, never mind the content behind it. And then you're a nationally certified counselor after passing your board exams. So the reason I'm so excited to have you on the show is because for a lot of people, I guess twofold, for a lot of people, they view running as an avenue through which they're able to achieve kind of a better, a better mental health state that through running, it will help them get, you know, through whatever they're, they're experiencing to kind of like a higher plane. And yet at the same time, there's plenty of people, uh, myself included, who struggle with the mental side of running from time to time that, it, that, that in and of itself can bring in, bring out anxiety mm-hmm. and self doubt and, you know, feelings of inadequacy or, you know, a whole boatload of things. So I feel like for, for a lot of people, running can kind of pull from both ends. So I'm really excited to have you on here to talk about this because let's just start right from the top. I know something we talked about in one of our pre-show conversations is that for a lot of people, they view running as a way to deal with, you know, mental health challenges that they have. And for you, do you have you found either in research that you've done, read, or your own personal personal experiences that that's a valid thing to uh, to endeavor to do? Yeah. So I look at it holistically. Like if you're looking at a puzzle, running can be a couple of the pieces. It can. There is a ton of research out there, so there are a lot of benefits to mental health. Uh, for example depression, it can reduce depression, depending on the severity, there's a spectrum with every single mental health disorder. So you've got mild, moderate, severe. And if you're closer to the mild or the moderate, it can help with those symptoms. With the severe, there's a lot of other things that go into it and with the other two, but you know, running's not going to do too much for someone with severe mental health issues. But there's also other things that are important to incorporate when you're dealing with mental health. Personally, in my own experiences, running has been my outlet for many different experiences in life, and it's helped me work through many things, but it's, it's by no means the end-all, be-all. Right, and I think that, that sometimes it gets glorified as just that, that it can be like this silver bullet, um, <laughs> you know, it can be a silver bullet solution to what ails people because it can be very powerful for some people, but I feel like sometimes it's just like, Oh, if you're depressed, you should just go, you know, be, go, go out for a run and 
go be an athlete and then, you know, you'll, you'll be able to figure it out. Right. And, and if that is what someone's being told and they go for a run and, you know, what if they're not in the shape of what their goal is? And so they fall short of it, then they're going to be even more depressed. And so then it's not really helping at all. It's kind of making the situation worse. Right. Um, and then is it, is it kind of like the, the mind body connection that, that is the primary reason that running can be a can have a positive force on someone's mental, um, I keep saying mental health. I've got to come up with some better synonyms for this. But (laughs) for someone's mental health, is it it the mind-body connection? Or what are some of the reasons that it can have a positive benefit? Yeah, there's so many different things. For some people, it's spiritual. So they connect with themselves. They connect with other people when they're running with them. They connect with nature. So they get that spiritual aspect of it. Some people, it's with most of us, it's chemical. So there's the endorphins going on. Those are the hormones that feel really good and they give us that runner's high and they can very easily be addicting, which could also call that could play into other issues with your stability, your mental health stability and your emotions. But so there's a lot of different things. There is chemically something going on in your body. Physically, you feel it, you get the endorphins. It feels good to get rid of some tension, you know, stress relief. There's all kinds of things. So I would definitely say it is mind-body connection. And then just from an origin standpoint, when you talk about people who are either um, experiencing depression or symptoms of depression or um, having, you know, I guess similar experiences, um, what is the interplay there? between genetics and just like upbringing and circumstances and the settings with which they live their lives? Like what, what are some of the foundational elements that cause, um, that cause that, um, I guess this would be a good first place to start. Yeah. So oftentimes that's like the classic nature versus nurture question and both sides are winning the argument, but the genetics would be just your chemical makeup. So if you have an imbalance of serotonin or, you know, dopamine, something in your brain with your neurotransmitters, that would be more of the genetic side. And so oftentimes, you know, working out can help balance that a little bit, but sometimes you need that medication management. And then the nurture side of it, the upbringing would be your environment growing up or your environment you're currently in. So, um, if there's chaos in the home growing up or currently stability, if roles are confused for the individual attachments, a huge one, how you attach to your mother or your father plays a significant role. Um, your dependence, your independence, how much you're given as, you know, as you're growing up, did you have a lot of, did you depend on other people a lot? Were you very independent and self-sufficient? And another big one would be like trauma and abuse. That's something we see a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. That's for sure. I know you've experienced, you worked with those communities um, as well. Do you find that there are people who maybe in some areas of their lives, they deal with mental health challenges um, to a higher degree than they do in maybe in a different part of their life? By that, I mean, like maybe if they're at work, they have it a little bit more together, a little more confident, they may be a little bit more routine, but if they're, I say they have young kids and they're at home, um, maybe it's just the freewheeling nature of that environment is like exacerbate some of those issues, or is it more just like broad based, like across the board throughout the day? I think every individual is a little different. I, 
probably a lot different actually. Um, so I think it could look both ways. I think some people it's going to be everywhere they go. Like if they're on the severe end of the spectrum, you're going to notice things are changing in their life and they're behaving differently. But then you're going to have those people that, you know, you work with them every day, you talk to them, you see them, you have no idea what's going on and they can have confidence in this awareness and be really motivated at work. And like, that's all the energy they have. So if they have, if they're depressed and they have symptoms of depression, if they put all their energy into work and nobody at work saw that they might come home and just totally fall apart and they might have no energy to cook, no desire to do anything. And you don't really know what's going on internally. So like the first thing that comes to mind is the Kate Spade, you know, no one really on the outside knew what was going on. She was super successful, but she had a lot of demons going on and it just wasn't universal for her. Right. And then we're talking, we're talking a lot about depression right now, but I think you could also branch out into anxiety um, and other things too. Like what, when you see people who have mental health challenges that are fairly common, obviously depression is one of them. What are some of the others? Another one would be anxiety. We are the most anxious culture ever. Like our generation has never been so anxious. Um, so that one I see more than anything. A lot of times people are dual diagnosed, which means they have a little bit of both or something else. Uh, another common one, I think, especially within the running community is eating disorders. I've listened to your podcast and the correlation, like I just want to study that right there because it's so high with women and running, which makes complete sense. Uh, I just I just interviewed a woman last night and we talked about that extensively. She ran um, her name is uh, Starla Garcia. She ran at the University of Houston and like she peaked as a freshman because um, she ended up developing an eating disorder. And then the last three years there was just absolutely, you know, it was a very challenging time for her. And Mm -hmm. it was, you know, again, like like you mentioned, I've had a bunch of people on the show and it seems to be something that uh, is maybe common isn't the right word, but it, for some of you who've been on the show, like Starla, I, that was part of the reason I had her on was because I knew that was in her background. But mm-hmm. there's other people who have opened up about that on the show that I didn't know that going into the episode. Okay. So like, there's definitely like, I guess a higher, maybe a higher percentage of, of people on the show have, or, you know, had or are currently dealing with eating disorders than like I would have assumed when I booked the guests, you yeah. know what I mean? So it makes me wonder how, how prevalent it is um, just in effort, you know, just the, the general population. Absolutely. And there's another term like body, body dysmorphia, which it's just this, um, you don't see your body as it is. And I truly believe the majority of women feel that way. And maybe men too. I'm not a man, so I don't know, but just the women that I've talked to in my personal life, professionally, it's very uncommon to find a woman who's like, I love everything about my body. It's just not that normal. So it makes sense. You know, runners, they're trying to get fit. Your body is a big focus. It makes sense that they develop that in the process. Now with body dysmorphia, is it, is it that they just don't like, like, what is that exactly? Like when I first hear that, I think like maybe they're like, you know, overly focusing on the negatives and just kind of like diminishing or ignoring the positives. Absolutely. Okay. But also like you could look at someone and not see something, but that individual who's looking at themselves sees it. So, you know, they might be hypersensitive about their stomach and their stomach is bulged and it's bloating and they hate it. But you would look at it and you'd be like, I see a flat stomach. Like I just can't see it. And in reality, it's not there, but 
they can't see that. Like people have body dysmorphia about their nose, about their teeth. Like it can, it's not just like fat or um, overweight stuff. There's all different areas of the body that people become fixated on. Right. And when you have, um, let's just go back to anxiety. Cause I know that can be a very common thing um, now. And I feel like it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And I feel like at least the people that I'm aware of, and I know personally, I think it really, um, it, again, this is a small sample size and this is all anecdotal, but I think it really goes to what you mentioned earlier, the people who like have, you know, part of their life, they have it on lock, they have lockdown, but then they say they come home or at the end of the day, it's like they spent so much energy locking that part of their life down that they mm-hmm. just kind of like melt away. And then all of a sudden they just feel like the rest of their life is in, in total chaos or they don't have any control over it. And then that just like exacerbates the issue. Yeah, absolutely. And with anxiety, it, it spills into everything. So um, they try, you're, you, I'm anxious. Like I have anxiety. Um, I have OCD subclinically is what <laughs> my therapist says. So I kind of have it, but it's not to the degree where it's unmanageable. But with anxiety, we find things that we can control and we can make them how they're supposed to be. And that feels really good and it reduces the anxiety. So I have to do to do lists that are all checked off. Like they make me feel really good. My paperwork at work is impeccable that I can control. It feels really good. But when change comes or something unexpected comes, that's when it's like that my anxiety will flare up and then it will become problematic. Now, when you are trying to help someone, you know, kind of work through one of those, you know, work through that as a challenge, right? So you mentioned you have a therapist. So mm-hmm. if you like bring this, bring this up to your therapist, is this something that she can help you work through or he can help you work through? Or is it just a matter of getting used to that feeling and not feeling like it's going to like become an avalanche of emotion when you're going through it? You can absolutely work through it. There's many different levels. So there's that spectrum, mild, moderate, severe. If you have it to the severe end, you definitely need to seek someone for psychiatric medications. And it's, it's nothing to be afraid of. Like there's so many, like you can get such a low dose of something and that will bring you down to the part where you're therapeutic is what we call it. And then we can work with you because if it's too high that you can't think rationally at all, we can't work with that. But I'm on the mild, moderate end. So CBT is something that's very common. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. And it looks like many different things. For example, you can give them a homework assignment to write out all your thoughts you have throughout one day. And then you bring it back into the session and you talk about, okay, where's the rational thinking and where's the irrational thinking? Because a lot of anxiety is irrational thoughts. It's a lot of fears. It's a lot of emotional based things. So if you look at it from a logical end, you get to see okay, that wasn't so rational. And when you see that face-to-face and you start doing that in your head, you work through that and it reduces the anxiety. But it's absolutely, you can work through that. Now, when you're talking about anxiety, is that a symptom of something else or is that the cause? Like, obviously, it's like something you can diagnose. But just, I always get, I always confused about, you know, just the symptoms versus causes debate with some of the, like, whether it's depression or anxiety and things like that. That's the million dollar question. (laughs) It really, that's what, that's why I like therapy because that's what we discover for some individuals. It's going to be strictly chemical 
And when they get some medication, it's completely gone because it's just their genetics. For other people, it could be, you know, um, how they were brought up. If they had a very anxious parent, they might be very anxious as individuals, as adults. Um, For me personally, um, going to get really vulnerable, but (laughs) it's something I've worked through. So I feel comfortable talking about it, but mine is attachment. So you bond with the parent that is the opposite sex stronger. So mine would be my father. Yours would be your mother. So if there's any injury in that attachment, that will create different, it'll look different for everyone. And for me, it's anxiety. So I get the fear of abandonment, but it doesn't look like that. So I didn't know that for a very long time. For me, it was, I constantly want to succeed. So I had to get all the letters after my name. I had to win all the races. And I thought it looks really good. Like my boss loves that about me, but it's not healthy in other areas of my life. So it's not going to be beneficial in my marriage. It's not going to be beneficial in my relationships. And I had to dig really deep and realize that it's just a fear of rejection. And so that creates anxiety is fear. So that fear creates that anxiety. And when things change in my life, they get amplified. And so I have to remember all the tools that I have that nobody's rejecting me. Everything's okay. It's just change. Now, are you able to kind of bring that like meta thought processing in the moment? Or is that like a learned behavior that you really kind of get over a long period of time? Oh, um, I would say both. When it's intense, so I I asked my husband, he's okay with me sharing this. Um, He lost his mom a year and a half ago, and he went through the grieving process, which as a therapist, I expected it to look exactly how the stages are, and it wasn't. And so that created anxiety in me, and I didn't see it. I was totally like, he's changing. It's all him. Things are weird, blah, blah, blah. And it took some strong women in my life, some colleagues, therapists to say, you know, maybe he's just going through something and this is some of your abandonment stuff going on. And so in that situation, no, I I couldn't see that for myself. When I go through a situation like that and it's brought to my attention now when I have other situations, I think back to that. So I don't know moving forward if we have another big event, if I'll be able to click it faster, but I hope I do. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And that, that's, that's so interesting that even for someone with your background and experience and, you know, this is something you think about quite often for a long period of time, that is even something for you to, to, you know, to, you know, not have this like on lock all the time, mm-hmm. even, even with all of the knowledge at your disposal, um, which also begs the question, what the hell can the rest of us do? If someone like <laughs> you can, can fall into that trap. Um, so, you know, for me, you know, you, you've been vulnerable uh, about you know, some of the things that you've, you've worked through, you know, and like for me, I haven't gone through something like that. Um, but, you know, for me, you know, when it comes to just like dealing with mental challenges, I, I feel like I've been very blessed in a lot of ways. Like I haven't had to deal with depression or anxiety and things like that, but just from a much more low key level, maybe less, not less important, but you know, something that's not debilitating, but something that for runners and this and this is a running podcast, not a mental health podcast, which is, it's certainly the first twenty minutes started out that way. But <laughs> I'm bringing it around slowly but surely. Um, you know, for me, I have like you know, my own fears that that are involved with running that I feel like are probably a little bit. Um, 
probably a little bit, you know, deep seated um, and maybe not necessarily athletic based. But one of them for me is, you know, basically a fear of racing in a way and not racing specifically, but basically not reaching my goals. So goal races for me are very anxious affairs, Um, not in the training per se, but in the lead up to it, you know, the day of, you know, right at the starting line and then even in the race itself, that's for sure. So is that something that's, that's fairly common or where does, where does something like that potentially stem from? And feel free to ask me questions if you need to. Okay. Yeah. I would, the first thing coming to my mind is fear of failure. So what does it mean to fail to you would be the first thing I would ask. Um, I would definitely think not, not either like multi multi-layer thing. So I would say, first of all, Usually when I go into races, there is a well-defined goal for the race. And I usually have a coach. So it's not, it's come usually coming from a point of expertise. Like you should be able to, to run X, right? Like mm-hmm. as determined by a thoughtful professional who knows me. So I was like, okay, well, if they say that, then I should be able to do that. Like that's perfectly reasonable. And then also the fear of, and this is more after experiencing these issues is like the fear of giving in during a race when it starts getting tough. Right. So then that's like twofold, I guess it's like the fear of kind of like wimping out and what Mm -hmm. that means as, you know, as a person and also the fear of the, of regret once that does happen or if it does happen and knowing how I feel after the fact and how that doesn't really go away. I think there's a lot of identity we put into running. So when we have that huge fear, like if I don't make this time or if I don't do X that my coach thinks that I am capable of doing, what's that going to mean? And you're more than capable of doing it if someone believes you can, but there's so many things that factor in, like to have the perfect race day is so rare. So it's more likely you're not going to do it than you are unless you just really go out there and blow it away. So I think it boils down to, maybe an identity where what's your identity and have you always put it into sports or achievements or um, climbing the ladder, the hamster wheel kind of thing. Oh, for sure. Like I've definitely been like, my identity has been wrapped up in athletics since geez, since I knew the word identity, I guess. (laughs) It's probably what I would say. Um, You know, as a little kid all the way like through high school and college athletics and, and all of that. So it's been inextricably linked. For sure. And I would say, granted, poor listener, I'm sorry. This is this did not intend to be a therapy session. I apologize. Anyway, um, <laughs> I would say that um, there's been very few, if any, athletic goals that I've actually like set out to achieve that actually came to fruition. So I guess at this point, it's kind of like baked in baked into the lasagna, I guess, like the, the, the idea of like, Hey, there's a really, there's a real chance this isn't going to happen because well, they, they, it's never happened before. Yeah. So you're going by experiences, which would be very similar to like when I go, when I'm doing therapy with someone, I'm trying to get them to see their irrational thoughts. Like if you look at all the evidence, evidence says that you're not going to meet that goal. Well, is the goal too high? So are you setting yourself up for failure? And if it's not, look at other areas of your life. So take sports out of it. You know, 
did you fail at be I don't know much about your history of like if you completed college or high school but like look at every area of your life finances your relationships legals like do you have any legal issues all that stuff and if you don't fail in all of those you're not a failure and chances are you're not going to fail but if you hyper focus on the times you did fail which we all tend to do it creates that anxiety yeah, for sure. And you also have, especially for marathoners, you also have that fear of like what you've given up to do this. Yeah. Right? Because you run a marathon. It's not like missing a 5K. You're like, well, I can run another one in two weeks. Like, this might suck. This feeling blows, <laughs> but I can run another one in two weeks and I'll be perfectly healthy for it. Whereas, like, you run a marathon that doesn't go well. It's like, well, shoot, man. Like, when am I going to run another one of these suckers? And right. Have, like, and have like a healthy training buildup, like, leading into it. Right. It's like I might be able to run another one, you know, two, you know, two seasons from now. But who knows? I might get an injury. Maybe it's a year from now. Maybe it's a year and a half from now. Like, I feel like um, that's a big thing, especially for marathoners that I know. And even my own personal marathon experiences where if it doesn't go well, it's like, oh, geez, Louise, what a waste. Yeah, I mean, in finances, like if you travel to go there, like there's so many things that you invest into that race day, 18 plus weeks of training, you know, if you're paying for a coach, all of that, I would suggest taking time to write down like three or four goals. So the goal, the top goal, that's the A goal. And that's the time everyone thinks that you can make and you haven't done it yet. And you have that healthy fear about it, but that's enough fear to make you strive for it. B goal, maybe just a PR, whether that's a second, that's cool. C goal, you know, I'm just going to finish the race deagle. If I have to crawl, <laughs> whatever, you know what I mean? So that way you walk away with something and you still have fun. Like mine is always have fun. Cause I do this. I've done it as a job. I've done it to appease other people. And now it's just for me. So even if I don't get that PR, even if I don't get the BQ, yes, I'll be let down a little bit, but that's not my intent going into it. My intent is to enjoy it and have it be a fun hobby. Now, one common thing that I've seen I over and over and over again, as I've looked at ultra marathoners, like whether it's books, magazines, feature articles, podcasts, like basically you name the medium. I feel like one common theme for a lot of ultra marathoners, not all, certainly, but a lot of them, especially some of the best ones, is that they basically have like these uh, serious personal demons and it's almost as if this is the fuel uh, in the engine for their ultra marathon success. And I feel like it's, it's a common theme, even just with um, just, just, just solo athletes in general. I think it was like back in like 2005. I think it was like basically the top male um, endurance athletes in like swimming, which was like uh, Michael Phelps. It was Lance Armstrong in cycling. Uh, I forget the marathoner at the time, but there was like three other sports as well. It was like, it's like five for five of them all had like very challenging relationships with their father. And hmm. it was like, it, and it was like, there was, there was a whole like book about it and like a bunch of articles too. And it was like, listen, like not saying that if you want to raise an Olympian, you should be a dick to your son, <laughs> but basically saying like, if it doesn't, if it doesn't, kill them or doesn't like completely cripple them that like 
being able that, that, that these people, because they basically created the mental engine, they had like the mental engineering to deal with that either abuse or trauma that, that that exact same infrastructure allowed them to become the athlete they be, that they end up becoming. Like it was basically almost like a transferable skill that mm-hmm. that end up working in their favor from an athletic point of view, because it hardened them um, mentally um, and emotionally in a way that then benefited them later on in sports. And I feel like you see a lot of that in ultra marathon, both men and women. Yeah. I mean, I don't know a lot about ultras. I'm very attracted to them just because it's like one thing that seems very impossible to do, which attracts me. But um, I've read a lot on how people who have gone through really hard times, the resiliency they create and they utilize to overcome that and to still be able to function in society does tend to end up being a really big strength with endurance athletes. They are able to have a higher pain tolerance. They're able to mentally go to a different place when they start feeling that pain. And I think it is a big part of it is because they had to, when they were however young, they had to learn how to do that. So they can always think, you know, it's not as bad as that, or they have that deep drive, that fire within to push through when things do get tough because they know they can. So I've seen that as well. I think it's amazing. But (laughs) I also think just going, having my own dark side and what I've had to go through, I don't think it's worth it. (laughs) And I'm not an Olympian. So (laughs) I don't know what that feels like. But I just feel like in the long run, I think a better quality of life and not have to feel those things. Oh, no, for sure. (laughs) For sure. Yes, it's it's definitely not a guide to parental success. It's more (laughs) of like a very interesting thing to hear about after the fact. Like, yeah. Oh, how interesting. Like, I wonder if there are ways that we can strengthen someone's mental makeup in a much more um, positive way that leads to the same benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, yeah. You know, it's almost like you hear uh, and during World War Two, they called like basically like the, the near miss theory is that when Germany was bombing England um, right before the Blitzkrieg, they had um England set basically built a bunch of psychiatric hospitals out in the country, assuming that all the people who lived in these cities that were about to get bombed were going to basically be experiencing unbelievable mental stress, and that the mental health of, the, of these urban areas was just going to be a complete disaster. Um, but what ended up happening is basically people either died in the bombings. Or they were unaffected by them because it was that near miss scenario where they had this feeling of euphoria, not because of the, they were happy, but because it was like they didn't die. They turned out to be just fine. And it got to the point where these people who they've had like two or three near misses after a bombing that they wouldn't even go inside when um, when the alarm bells would, would come. That wow. like, The Germans would be like would be overhead you know bombing the city and then these people who'd gone through a couple bombings and had like lived to tell about it and were close enough to be considered a near miss Mm -hmm. um that all of a sudden it just it it just you know it just changed them psychologically to the effect and had a a very interesting effect on them um and there's a lot of other examples above this um there's people who um i forget 
exactly the person who who it was, but I know Malcolm Gladwell detailed it in Revisionist History. I think season one, a near miss with um, a, one of the members of the Civil Rights uh, Movement who was in like a church bombing like twice and like got out unscathed both times. And like from that day forth, like had absolutely no fear. And like was like, you know, like basically like just felt like they were maybe not consciously feeling like they were invincible, but basically lived as if. Right. Because it had gone through a potentially traumatic event that turned out not to be traumatic. And it just kind of like almost like rewired how they viewed risk. Yeah. So I think we could absolutely do that. It's just, it's not to that degree probably, but get it. Like if you're coaching someone or you're being coached to have them do something they're afraid of. So maybe run a certain time on an 800 that you didn't think you were able to do. And then when they do it, they, they feel that fear and they do it. Then you empower them and you build them back up. So it's like that near miss thing, you know, I'm really afraid. I don't think I can do that. And then you did. So what else can you do kind of thing? And I think we can rewire and we can change the way we approach running. And I think we can all be our own worst enemies. So we can all totally trash talk ourselves in our head and have all these negative thoughts and believe like, I'm never going to be able to do this, but we could also be our biggest cheerleader and we have to teach ourselves to be our biggest cheerleader. And how have you worked with people or experienced um, just the idea of the brain being a governor on performance um, in a way where like, you just feel like your your own you are your own worst enemy in terms of reaching your potential and oftentimes that's a purely mental process as opposed to a physical one i feel like this is every day in my life <laughs> <laughs> so i currently work in um a rehab like we're in an opioid epidemic right now if you didn't know that so i work in an inpatient i was an outpatient now i'm in an inpatient and it's i believe addiction is a disease and it is all over people and they do not believe they can live without the substance. So all day, every day, I'm just trying to show them that you can, like you can face life, you can deal with your grief and loss, you can deal with your anxiety, your depression, whatever you're going through, you can do it without the substance. And it's the same thing. It's that fear of not being able to do it. Right. And I think one of the people who, I feel like is like one of the most inspiring people. Um, and I listen to like, anytime I can get a hand on like an audio or video track that he's on, like I just consume it at length is David Goggins. Anyone who's doesn't know him, just look him up. I'm not going to do the whole bio now, but anyway, <laughs> um, and part of it is, and he's not the only one who talks like this, but for me, he's probably the most important one that I, that I um, subscribe to is that basically finding yourself through struggle. Um, you know, and by struggle, I mean, by putting yourself in a position to struggle, not struggle because someone else is putting you into it, you know, by, by, by choice, choosing to put yourself in an extremely difficult position and then reaping the rewards after the fact for doing just that. Is that something that, that, um, that is actually like, has like, I guess, research supporting it? Cause it feels right to me. I know that it's like something that I've experienced and just from a logic perspective, it seems like if you're willing to see it through that there would be a ton of positive benefits. Absolutely. 
I don't know the research behind being able to find yourself. And that would be like a whole podcast in itself of how do you find yourself? But I think we're all searching somewhere. And I think we all have something that, you know, we haven't faced yet, or we're still trying to work through in our lives. And we might not even be aware of it at this point until it comes up. But I think when we hit struggle and, you know, we're at our wits end and we're completely exhausted, much like marathons, you know, and you're out there and they say you, you totally find yourself in a race or in a marathon race. I think that that point of complete exhaustion, complete tiredness, you could completely fail and then you make it through and you see the other side. It's so empowering. And it's like, what else could I take on? You know, like, I'll never forget the first day I crossed my first marathon because it was impossible to me. And then when I did it, it was just like, what? (laughs) What? Now, why did you view it as impossible? Did you view it as impossible before you started? Or was it, did you reach a point in the race that just you were suffering like unbelievably? Both. (laughs) Um, I've ran my whole life and my college coach probably doesn't know this. So I hope he never listens to this, but He used to make us do two-hour runs on the weekends when we didn't have meets, and I never did them. I stayed in my dorm. I never (laughs) ran more than an hour that was prescribed, and I thought, I'm definitely not going to run under four hours, so I would be out there for four hours. There's no way that's going to happen. And then I trained. I looked up all the things. I tried my best to prepare myself, and I was like, there's a chance I'll And then out there, (laughs) the pain I felt, I ran Pittsburgh, which is one of the worst courses to do your first marathon on. And my quads were done. It was, I did not think it was happening. And then I hit mile 24 and I was like, okay, this is a reality. We're going to do this. So you fought through it. So for you, what were the mental tricks that you used, right? To, 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 to battle through, especially if you're running a challenging course. Oh man, I play all kinds Sometimes I'll talk to someone because misery loves company and I'll try to like waste five minutes of the time to not think about something. Sometimes if there's telephone poles, it's get to the next telephone pole or the water stop. Water stops are longer, so <laughs> that one can get tricky, but I play all kinds of games in my head. And where, do you, where did you run in college? I ran at Robert Morris University. All right. So I know they're division one in basketball. They're division one for track as well, track and cross country. Yeah, they are. Okay. So. When you're running that marathon, do you feel like you have um, just any like any uh, any comparisons that you're doing, right? Because you're like, all right, I'm running this in four hours, but I'm a former Division One runner. Like, does that is that for you like something that you were battling through? Because I know like for some people, they wouldn't put themselves in that situation because they're like, I used to be like <laughs> an unbelievable runner, and now I'm like, again, a four hour marathon is fine. Like I've run a four hour marathon, yeah. I have no problem with it, but it's not the same level as a division one runner necessarily. Like for you, was that something that you were willing to, to fight through or was there any like embarrassment or guilt associated with that? So not with the marathon because marathon was so different that, and I think that's why I like it because it doesn't relate to college. Cause I just got burned out. I took a whole year off of running. Like it was too much to do it. It's um, cross country, indoor and outdoor. So it's all year long. And then summer you're building your base. So I was totally over it at that point. So I think marathoning is my own thing and I can make my own goals and I can push my body when I want to. And I can like for Boston, I plan to just go have fun and I can because I have no expectations, no one to answer to. And I love that. 
But in comparison to college, I still haven't run a 5K since then because I know I'm never going to run that time again. So, yeah, I do fall into that category, too. So when you and I noticed that you in a post you mentioned that you didn't do any speed work in your first two marathons. <laughs> is that is that the reason why? Like, is you were you you didn't want to compare your splits to to workouts that you knew you'd done faster in the past? Exactly. Yep. I used to have. I swear I had PTSD. Not really, because this is a mental health talk. That was an exaggeration and me being dramatic. But I would get to the track and I just had this unsettling feeling, like. I, cause I used to have that feeling every time we had a workout, so I just wouldn't do them. I figured, why would I do them? I'm doing this for fun. And it wasn't until, I don't know if you follow Heather runs. Mm-hmm. She was um, doing like a live chat and I asked her, how do you, cause she ran in college. How do you make it fun again? And she said, it was so simple. And I don't know why I didn't think of it this way, but it's an investment like in the bank. So every time she goes to the track, whatever she's doing there, it's like an investment. So I just took on that mentality that every time I'm there, like I would just do mantras in my head, like BQ, 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 BQ. And that got me through. And then I saw my body change, um, not physically, but I could like not on the outside, but I could see that my VO2 was going up. I was hitting faster times and I realized that I enjoyed that. It wasn't something to be feared or to dread. Right. Cause it's just fun running fast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like track workouts are the best part of workouts. I don't really? Know. I don't know. But you that's like just, them. I do. I do. But you know what? But part of that, it's all chicken and egg. Because for me, I was like an anaerobic athlete, so I did basketball. So uh... like for me, and I mean, I did, I did track in high school as well and you know, a bunch of other sports, but whatever. But like I, I did mostly basketball. But like I can go, you know, I can go do a pretty good track workout. Whereas, like, if anyone listens to this show pretty consistently knows that, like, I do not do that on tempo runs. Like, I, yeah. I maybe I need to start bemoaning tempo runs. I think I'm probably in my own head. Like, <laughs> I'm, like, so far in my own head. I'm, I'm, like, I'm, like, down by my ankles now. I've gone all the way down, down my head, down my <laughs> neck, through my body, all the way down to the feet um, <laughs> regarding tempo runs. But, um, yeah, so for me, like, I mean, I love I love going to the track. And granted. I mean, a bad track day is worse than a bad tempo day because you're just like this dunk. Like <laughs> now, I just I feel awful. Um, yeah. But uh, I feel like the good days are better too because you're like this, like it's just so exhilarating to like run fast and like time it out and like go do another one and like beat that time and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I just I admire that about you because I cannot. I still don't love them, but now I can see them from a positive view. So, did you like them? When you were younger? Um, Because you didn't like the long runs. Like, did you like any runs? I guess. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, my way I got into running is so funny. I did basketball, but not to your level. Like, middle school, pretending that I, like, no coordination. And the coach had said, you know, pick up a fall sport. So I picked up cross country. I walked every day. And I overheard the coach say that I was holding back my teammates. So on my first race, I used that to fire, to light a fire in me and I beat them all. And then since then I haven't stopped running, but I don't know that I ever really enjoyed it up until probably marathoning. Like there'd be days of course where it was therapeutic and 
I needed it, but I don't think I would be like, I cannot wait to go to the track and do this workout. Like, no. <laughs> I think it's a love-hate. Yeah, I hear that. I, I, I mean, I, I definitely understand that. Um, especially it's different when you're younger because there's a social pressure to do it. Yeah. Whereas when you're older, there really isn't. Like, if you don't want to do it, then, like, no one cares. <laughs> right? I mean, no one cares when you do it either. So, uh, um, right. So you're, it really is just completely voluntary, which I think uh, makes it easier to do. It makes it more enjoyable because, like, when, it's, when there's an obligation attached to it, then the victories aren't as sweet. By victories, I mean small v, right? Just the little victories aren't as sweet because they right. just feel like, oh, this is what should have happened, right? It's like that was always one of the things when I coached basketball where it was like I never – like the, the, the positive effects of winning a game – like were one tenth of the emotional charge that I got from the negative effects of losing a game. Wow. It like wasn't even close. And this was not a Matt Chittum problem. Granted, Matt Chittum has a lot of problems more than just talking in the third person, but <laughs> it was, it was like a coach's problem. Like every coach has that issue. Like it's like, it's like a systemic thing. Um, but part of it too, is like you, you expect to win. And then if you win, you just did what you were expected to do. And there's like, not like, an inherent amount of great joy in doing something you expected to do. Right. I mean, like that's just, I think that's just kind of like the way of the world. Absolutely. One thing I always say is don't shut on yourself. (laughs) That is solid advice. (laughs) I hate the word should. It's like one of those irrational thoughts because you set this expectation that you already failed. So I should have done that. I didn't. That sucks. Right. So look at it from, you know, how could it have gone differently and move forward from there? Because we just beat ourselves up when we have that should. And it totally takes away from that win you had. Like, that's such a bold difference between the two, winning and losing. Yeah, I know, for sure. I mean, when I did my podcast with Laura Anderson, who won the Buffalo Marathon a few weeks ago, you know, so she ran in college. And so she was she went to a SUNY school and was an All-American. And she gets out of college and she was like, you know, kind of getting back into running, started doing the 5k route and, you know, was breaking like 22 and then breaking 21 and like was getting basically like viewed every PR as like, well, that should have happened. And if she didn't get, if she didn't send no PR every race, like, again, she would shoot on herself, which is like the funniest <laughs> expression. I'm like, I'm like dying. All right. But she you know, and like, that's exactly what happened. It was like the same sort of thing. And she talked very openly about how she like she was very hard on herself and she basically cheated herself out of a lot of enjoyment yeah it um, absolutely in that time. yeah um again no maybe maybe by doing so she then prepared herself for more success in her 30s so you don't necessarily want to go back and change things but it does provide you with maybe a better maybe just the realization provides you the context to enjoy them later on in life and not trying to just, you know, live in the past, like, oh, I wish I should have done X, Y, Z. Just like, well, I won't do that anymore. I'm going to move on and, and really enjoy this. And, you know, it's like, I'm going to have a beer after the race anyway. Either, <laughs> cel- either a celebratory beer or a, oh, damn it, beer. Exactly. <laughs> well, Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really enjoyable. And I, I appreciate you talking about this. I know that, you know, we're not you know, diagnosing anybody here. And if anyone's experiencing um any issues that they think they should talk to someone about 
obviously do more than just listen to the Rambling Runner podcast, right? I mean, what are some of the things where if someone's listening to this and saying, hey, man, you know, I think maybe I should be talking to someone about um, some of the some some of my struggles. What are some what what are what are some things that you'd recommend that they do in order to find somebody um, that might be a good fit for them? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. For you know, you you want to go talk to someone, you need a therapist, or you want a therapist, you want to explore something. First of all, we all need therapy. I don't know one person on this earth that doesn't need a therapist. There's no stigma. There's no judgment. It's a safe place where you can go. And just be vulnerable, be transparent, and not have to worry about it getting, no one gets to hear that. It's your place. So I highly encourage it. You can call your insurance. So that's what I always do. You know, if I have a patient who wants to see see an individual after they're in our inpatient, we would call their insurance and ask them, you know, who's in my network around me? And you can set up an appointment with someone around you. And I would highly encourage you to research that person and see what kind of style they have because every therapist is different. So if you have a negative experience, it could just be their style. doesn't mean they're a bad therapist. And so find what you're attracted to style wise and find a therapist who, who has that style. Um, if you are struggling more, on the, you know, thinking about worthlessness or helplessness, I would encourage you to talk to someone immediately. Um, they're 911, 302, like never play on the edge of it. If you are having any of those thoughts, take them very seriously because you matter and you're worthwhile and someone wants to listen to you. Now, when you're, when you're working with a therapist for the first, first time, or maybe the first few times, What's the line between finding somebody who's a good fit and maybe just understanding that it's going to be hard at first? Like, oh, what's that's a the... good question. Yeah. So like, I feel like that, that, could be, that could be a troubling spot for some people. Yeah, absolutely. I always go by the maybe three to four sessions and also look at yourself because it's very hard to be honest, especially if it's your first time. So we all like to have that social desirability and we don't let them in a little But if you don't let them in, then they really don't get to do the work with you. So make sure that you're being completely transparent with them before you make that call. And we are expecting, like, we know that things aren't driving. We feel what you feel in that situation. So we're hoping that you get the assertiveness to say, hey, this isn't really working and tell them why. And if it still doesn't go good from there, you can terminate and find someone else. And there's never hard feelings. You can just say, you know, it's not really working for me and find someone else. That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this, Megan. Um, If someone wants to follow you online, um, what's the best way to find you? Instagram is probably the only social media that I utilize, to be honest. And my handle is watch me try and run. All right. Watch me try and run. That's going to be in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's such an awesome avenue to talk about my two biggest passions. I'm super grateful. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you. Megan, thank you again for coming on this show. And thank you, the Rambling Runner listeners, for listening all the way through to the end. Like I said in the intro, this is kind of my first step in this mental health journey that I want to take you, uh, the listeners, with along with me. Um, 
this is something that I know is important to a lot of people in the Rambling Runner community and the running community at large. And I think these are important topics to discuss, uh, get more information on, and just kind of bring out into the light because these are things that um, for some people, there's a certain amount of shame or nervousness about um, maybe talking about them in public. But overall, these are things that afflict a lot of people. And even if they didn't, attaching shame to them is not going to be beneficial. So um, I'm just I'm just excited to explore a lot of these topics more often here on the show. Thanks again to Mercury Mile for sponsoring the podcast. I really love that. And also, if you give the Patreon page a shout, it's at patreon.com forward slash rambling runner. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it and happy running.